just after 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that must mean it's time again for Money Management with Opus 111 Group's Mike Mail. Here's Mike. Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. This is Mike Mail. I'm with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group, and it's 9 o'clock Pacific on Saturday, so we're here to talk with you about the markets and the economy, and hopefully provide some insight into all this stuff that's been going on over the last week or so. Uh, we'll start today with, uh, I'll give you the ending uh, averages numbers, and then uh, a little bit on some market news, uh, the economy, and then I want to talk, I have this designation that's called Behavioral Financial Advisor, and um, what it does is help me and, well, ultimately my clients understand why we do what we do when it comes to the market. And I want to uh, use that kind of approach in talking about perceptions and attitudes in the market because I think that has a lot to do with what's going on right now, perhaps more so than what the actual prices are. But let us uh, begin with the proverbial data dump, the Dow. And I'll tell you what, yesterday was nuts because most of the day all three indices were up. And then at the close, they all, forgive me, but took a dump. And no idea why. It's the weekend, and the traders don't like their uh, laundry out hanging over the weekend. So maybe that's it, because there was no other news that came out toward the close. In any regard, the Dow was at 32,944, down 229. Uh, the uh, S&P ended the week at 4,204. The Nasdaq at 12,843. Russell 2000 was at 1979. Gold settled at 1991 an ounce. Silver was at 2582 an ounce. Crude at 109.33 was off about $6 a barrel from a week ago. The 10 year Treasury was at 1.99%. That continues higher. And soft white wheat uh, was at 1170 a bushel. Now, this next week, we're going to be hearing from the Fed about interest rates. They're going to meet Tuesday and Wednesday, and then there'll be a news conference on Wednesday at about 11 our time when Mr. Powell will hold forth as to what they said, why they're doing it, etc., etc. Uh, also, Wednesday, we'll get the retail sales report, see what folks are doing in terms of spending, and then we'll also, on Thursday, get housing starts and industrial production. Now... Uh, in terms of oil, this last week, oil was <laughs> pretty nuts. Uh, Sunday, the uh, West Texas Intermediate, which is the uh, crude uh, contract that U.S. uses, uh, hit $130 a barrel. That was the highest in July of 2008. Now, as I just mentioned, it closed at 109 uh, yesterday, so off somewhat. There's a, they always say that in this business, the cure for high prices is high prices. In other words, it gets to a point people say, nah, I don't think so, and then they drop it back. Uh, there's also been some machinations with the Russian oil where people are buying it at a deep discount because <laughs> nobody will buy it from those guys right now. But in any regard, uh, that's the price. Uh, you know, you, and, and the markets have been... Let's be polite. Churning around here, uh, they haven't really been going much of anywhere, just churning around. And 
you know, you look at, uh, especially folks who've been writing the high-tech stocks and those kinds of issues, the big growth names, you know, it's not against the law to take partial profits. You don't have to write them into the ground. You can, but I wouldn't recommend getting out of them because, again, the markets do well longer term. And, but if you're concerned about exposure, take partial profits. And then also look at the same time. Now, this doesn't apply, this tax loss part doesn't apply in retirement plans because there is no taxation on transactions within a retirement plan of whatever type. So in your non-retirement accounts, uh, look it over, take some tax losses, and then if you still want to own that position, you can buy it back in 31 days and still keep that loss to offset some of these profits. So you might want to do that just to kind of clean up your portfolio a little bit. And if you own Amazon, you're a happy guy. Uh, they mentioned, what was it, Thursday, that they're going to be doing a 20-for-1 stock split and repurchase about $10 billion worth of their shares. And they're doing a very simple reason. They wanted to make it more accessible for investors. If they did it at uh, the price yesterday, the new shares would be around $150 each. Uh, so that's certainly a lot easier for uh, folks to handle than $3,000 a pair, you know. Uh, I don't know. It seems that way to me anyway. But uh, in any case, we're also seeing some effect uh, from ripple effect from the war in that you're seeing uh, some earnings revisions downward uh, by analysts uh, and a fall in upward revisions, you know, it's a ripple effect, but it, it's pretty much uncertainty. Uh, they're making their best guesses and so just say, mm hmm that's interesting. Now, you know, people talk a lot about volatility and volatility is just price changes, fluctuation in prices. And it's not good or bad. I mean, if it goes up, nobody complains, right? But in any case, it really depends on how you react to it or use it. So it's just part of the market. I wouldn't make it a thing one way or another. It's just the market is more volatile some days than others for reasons that not all of us understand, including yours truly. Now, also just one little bit, you know, commodities are being mentioned a lot more in the markets lately because they are typically pretty good inflation hedges. But over the long term, commodities of and unto themselves give you a return around what cash pays, but you get higher volatility. But the interesting thing is, if you add it to a regular portfolio of stocks and bonds, it acts kind of like a, uh, it's what they call non-correlated. So as those move up, commodities go down and vice versa. In the 70s and 80s, commodities just shot the lights out. Uh, in the last 10 years or so, they've underperformed rather significantly because the stock market has done well. But in any case, it uh, I think you might think of it this way. If, if you're making chili you know, and you put in chili powder to make it more lively, well, when you add commodities to a bowl of uh, stocks and bonds, it tends to make it less spicy. It takes out some of the volatility of the stocks and bonds. So it's worthwhile. Uh, you might want to look at some uh, good high-quality ETFs or something to help give you that kind of exposure in your overall uh, portfolio. Now, as far as the economy is concerned, you know, this war stuff, some of the things that uh, I think is really driving what's going on is that 
Russia and Ukraine together supply about one-third of the world's wheat, a quarter of the world's barley, and nearly three-quarters of sunflower oil. Now, I don't know exactly what sunflower oil is used for, but somebody must because they supply three-quarters of it. Now, and, uh, and of course, the uncertainty about available supplies is continuing to push up the agricultural fe uh, futures. Wheat went to its highest level since 2008. Corn up about 25% so far this year, the highest uh, the, earlier this week, the highest since uh, 2013, uh, but they've come back some. Uh, most of the uh, commodities came back uh, some on yesterday. Aluminum and nickel, out of their minds, they just jumped to the highest level in over a decade. Nickel moved up to over $100,000 a ton before trading was halted. Now, one, oh, by the way, that comes with all that, the nickel and other metals that Russia controls are um, essential, integral parts of electronic vehicles. So that's another thing. It drives up the cost of those and also uh, makes supply for uh, future construction somewhat suspect, shall we say. Uh, the uh, Consumer Price Index came out this week, as we know. I, and it came in at 7.9% uh, February to February. And it's always about, uh, about in line with what was expected, but it was the fastest rate since uh, January of 1982. Now, one rule of thumb that Mr. Powell mentioned last week is that for every $10 per barrel increase in oil prices, our inflation rate is increased by 0.2%. So Brent, which is Brent crude, which is the global oil benchmark, it's the North Sea oil, has increased about forty dollars a barrel since the start of the year. So, yeah, it definitely affects the inflation rate here in our country. Now, sixty-one percent of the electricity in the U.S. is generated from fossil fuels, and utilities account for about twenty percent of your total housing costs. So there is another sideways effect of higher oil prices. Folks, I think, have two options when it comes to inflation and, and the effect it has on your spending. One, you slow your spending to account for higher prices, amortize the money out, you know, in a different manner. Or you spend down your savings and or go into debt to keep spending at the same level through much higher usage of debt and home equity in, to match the higher prices. It, it's up to you, that, but those are pretty much the only ways you can uh, effectively deal with it. Now, one thing I know for sure is that folks love to spend money. Now, I'd be real surprised if households cut back their spending a lot, even with higher uh, pump prices, because, uh, you know, the pandemic seems to be finally pretty much in the rearview mirror. At least it's not on the headlines every day. And... That has a lot of pent-up demand. We've also got the stimulus checks floating around. There's still, anyhow, there's a lot of money out there. My guess is we'll see consumers continuing to consume. Now, we'll see that this next week in the um, retail sales report. So we'll just see how accurate that is here in the early going. Now, I, I, I'm calling what I'm talking about here perceptions and attitude. And I think that, uh, you know, not so much what do you buy, uh, what sectors are you in. This is what really drives how well you do when it comes to investing. 
I've said this uh, many times on the program, um, and that is is that investing is covered by one kind of perception. You know that you have the certainty of uncertainty. You will be absolutely sure that you don't know how it's going to all come out. The good news is nobody else does either. There's no secrets. It's just that we all have to make our best uh, estimations as to what's going to be good for us and how do we get there. So, you know, the S&P has hit new all-time highs every year since 2013. 347, as a matter of fact. And we even had one earlier this year before we started slip-sliding away here. So, where do we go from here? Sir John Templeton, he wrote uh, 16 Rules for Investment Success. Now, he published this in 1933, so this isn't exactly new news, but it says this, and I'm quoting. The investor who says this time is different when, in fact, it's virtually a repeat of an earlier situation has uttered among the four most costly words in the annals of investing, unquote. This time is different. I've been doing this a long time, and I'd like to, I wish I had some money for every time I heard that this time it's different or a variation on it. Now, many feel that the current crisis is different than previous crises. Well, it is. Every crisis is different in some specific ways. It's not, you know, not the same participants, not the same numbers, whatever. But with all the news coverage, you can be made to feel as if today is bad and tomorrow is going to be even worse. It's easy to get overwhelmed with pessimism when that's the main focus of most news stories of whatever type. You know, crises influence us to focus on the negatives. This flood of 24-7 crisis news coverage contributes to anxiety about the economy. And that anxiety makes you much more vulnerable to making emotionally driven investment mistakes that can very definitely damage your long-term results. Now, investors are continuing to deal with these surging commodity prices and slowing economic growth from this invasion. We've got rising prices for oil, gasoline, natural gas, precious metals like nickel and palladium, and again, those are with the EV thing, and uh, a slowdown in overall global growth and inflation going up. Now, everything is hypersensitive right now as to what may happen, could, might, maybe. Those are great words that you hear in these kinds of circumstances. But people then take that leap of no faith and presume that what they're saying might, could, maybe, will be a fact. Bologna sausage. Now, last Monday, the S&P had its single worst day in the last 16 months. Tuesday, the market dropped to its lowest point since last June. But then, on Wednesday... <laughs> The index had its best day in 21 months. So worst day in 16 months, best day in 21 months. I would recommend a neck brace if you're trying to watch this stuff day to day. But don't do that. You know, tech stocks have gotten killed. But it's really kind of hard to feel sorry for folks who have been in that sector because even after the 20% decline, the NASDAQ 100, which is the quote we always give, has provided a return of 21% per year for the last five years. That is not chopped liver, folks. In 19, excuse me, 2019, it was up 39%, 2020, 49%, 21, 27%, 2021, 
and 22 so far, well, actually I did the math, it's down about 30% uh, year to date. Now, within that universe, Netflix and Facebook are trading at the same levels they were in 2018. The three strongest names in big tech, Apple, Google, Microsoft, are in correction territory. Now, 70% of the NASDAQ is down 20% or more. Again, this is mostly the growth stocks, the big techs. Another 20% of the stocks in the NASDAQ have been cut in half. So the average drawdown on that index is about 45%. For instance, uh, Zoom, you know, the early pandemic leader, it's down 13% over the last two years. Well, an early laggard, uh, the uh, startup called ExxonMobil, is up 92%. So if you take a look, as we do, at your typical American portfolio, it has a ton of technology stocks in it, or whether they're individually owned or through ETFs or mutual funds. Uh, consumer discretionary stocks are also a big factor, and also with very little exposure to commodities. Now, and just for instance, and this isn't, I didn't do it through yesterday, but this year alone, the energy sector is up itself almost 36 percent techs are down <coughs> excuse me over 14 percent <coughs> excuse me now the stock market again had bottom well last wednesday it was the anniversary of when it bottomed 13 years ago since that period it's up 700 percent now if you had been told to hang tight then and told that the S&P would return 17% a year for the next 13 years? <laughs> Nobody would believe that. What are you, nuts? I remember those people. Anyhow, there, it was not a, a time when uh, people were looking for sunny uh, horizons. But the darkness in the markets have always given way to light because hope is way more powerful than despair. People never lose the motivation to provide for their families and to make their futures better than the past. They're going to figure out some way to do it. Now, the point here is that there are no perfect assets to allow you to get there. Nothing can always hedge you against every single risk. There is no hedge that works for a combination of inflation, deflation, up markets, down markets, rising interest rates, falling interest rates, peace, war, recessions, expansion, all that stuff. Investing involves uncertainty. You can't predict how certain investments are going to react to every situation. Investing involves risk. And you cannot protect your portfolio from every risk because investing also involves trade-offs. The short version is you can't have it all. Now, the good news is once you realize there's no perfect assets, you can then begin to create a portfolio that takes into account the fact that nothing works always and forever in the markets. Diversification and asset allocation will go very far to help reduce your overall risk. Now, in their own eyes, investors have been playing it safe for some time now. Now, here's a kind of a headache-inducing number. By the end of last year, Total assets and cash investments, money markets, CDs, all that stuff, savings accounts, $17.2 trillion, earning absolutely nothing, losing money on an after-tax, after-inflation basis. Now, we all know that the numbers look uh, the same on the statements, 
but that's why they call inflation a hidden tax. It'll never show up in there anywhere. So as a result, cash investments may provide some folks who aren't, well, knowledgeable about it, uh, a sense of security because of their perceived benefit of principal stability. As of the end of last year, and I'm sure this number is higher now, total assets in all cash investments is at $17.2 trillion, earning literally nothing. Now, you know, and that's because people have this perception that that's safe. You know, if they don't see the number move, that's safe. Okay. Well, making a portfolio safer, yeah, well, that's perfectly rational. Nobody likes losing money, especially when the market drops. Now, the, it's been shown, this is one of these things from this uh, Behavioral Financial Advisor program, that uh, the pain of losing money is about twice as intense as the pleasure of gaining it. I don't understand that, but it's, that's what they say. You know, when the market drops 20% or more, the pain and temptation to make your portfolio safer, well, it probably goes up. Now, just for reference, since 1960, to keep it in relatively modern times, the market has dropped more than 30% on seven different occasions. That's not exactly frequently. But here's the best part. It came back and came back higher each and every time. Now, although so-called safer investments may provide some short-term calmness to your anxiety when the market is uh, bouncing around, choosing safety can be a huge mistake for long-term investors. A reactionary investor who trades long-term results for short-term comfort may not be happy with that long-term outcome. Because, again, bonds have been effectively moved from what they've been considered as risk-free returns to return-free risk because of the lack of return. Now, this current market will, in time, I believe, be seen as one of the major opportunities for those who continue to invest in the face of the fears currently dominating the headlines. But that's in the future. Right now may not feel that way at all. It feels like a downtrend, and it kind of kills your enthusiasm just, you know, drip by drip. Well, hopping in and out of investments to prevent losses or capture gains, that can be a primary reason why investors have underperformed the markets over time. Anxious investors tend to overestimate the risk of holding stocks and underestimate the risk of not holding them. Again, if you look at the data... You have to invest in stocks, I mean, for long term. There's just, it crushes everything else. Well, off the soapbox, back to the facts here. Um, over the past 30 years, individuals have underperformed the S&P 500 and bonds regularly and continuously. Now, <laughs> the bottom line here is, is that your behavior determines your success much more than performance. For instance, uh, now these are, this is from a company called Dalbar. We've talked about them before, D-A-L-B-A-R. They f track fund flows, mutual fund flows in different categories. And uh, in this particular instance, we're talking about funds that track the S&P 500 as well as the Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index for fixed income. Now, this uh, study goes for a 30-year period from 1970 to 
to 2020. And it looks at 30-year periods, you know, uh, within that period of time. Now, in from 1970 through 2020, the average return on the S&P, average annual return, excuse me, 10.7%. That's pretty good. The average stock investor, the average fund stock investor, 6.2%. Whoa, that's 4.5% less. Pretty good. I just did that math, wasn't it? Now, the the, uh, bond index over that 30-year period, where there were some pretty good bond yields, was 5.86%. The average fixed income investor... (laughs) 0.45%. That's about 5.5% less. What the heck? That's, uh, and then, here, let's, let's add insult to injury. In the 1970s, the S&P returned 5.9% a year. I know that because I was there. The problem is inflation was 7.1% over that period, so real returns were negative. Real returns is your return, well, inflation is, uh, you take inflation, take away your return, and that's your real return. So that means inflation must be bad for the market, right? Well, in the 80s, inflation was 5.5% per year, but the market was up 173 on an annualized basis, about 12% higher than that. Well, what about low inflation? Well, inflation was 2.6% per year in the 2000s, but the S&P had a, the proverbial lost decade following 1% falling. Try again, Mike, falling 1% per year. Now, inflation was just 1.8% a year in the 2010s. Stocks were 13.4. Now, on the other hand, bonds, as we've discussed, are definitely not a great hedge against high inflation over the long run. From 1950 to 1981, inflation was 4.3%. The 10-year treasuries, which is kind of the bogey for interest rates during that time, was 2.8%. So, again, after you factor in inflation, bond investors over a 31-year period lost more, and this is principal, not income, lost more than 37% of their investment on a real basis. Now, my, my favorite investment, gold, that's very sarcastic, was a great hedge against inflation in the 70s. It was up more than 1,300%. That was 31% a year. And even allowing for the 7% annual inflation in the 70s, it was up more than 23% a year. Now, it started at $36 an ounce. They took, it was locked in at that rate for multiple years, and then Mr. Nixon took it off. Anyway. So gold must be a wonderful inflation hedge, right? Well, how old that thought? Since the start of 2020, we've had the highest inflation rate in four decades, and gold is flat, unchanged. Matter of fact, gold is still below the 1980 highs when adjusted for inflation. Yet, the S&P is up more than 3,500% since 1980 after including inflation. The point is there's no one perfect asset. Nothing can always hedge you against every single risk. Nothing. You know, investing involves uncertainty. As I said, it's the certainty of uncertainty. You cannot predict how certain investments are going to act. Investing involves risk. You cannot protect your portfolio from every risk. 
you know, there's trade-offs. You, you need not only the, have the courage to act, but in some cases, the courage not to act. You have to resist the emotional pull to do something. There's a lot of that going on right now. Where folks say, gee, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I've had conversations and, and heard comments from folks that, you know, they're worried about nuclear war and all this other kind of stuff. Uh, well, I think that's kind of pushing the envelope a little bit. <coughs> My own personal opinion, having been a military guy, is that <laughs> these Russians are not doing a very good job of persecuting a war, but and I'm not trying to make it any light lightheaded, but it, they're just not. Uh, in any case, you know, crises influence most to focus on the negative. I mean, that's kind of normal. This flood of 24-7 crisis news contributes to your anxiety about the economy and shoot a whole lot of other stuff. That anxiety makes you more vulnerable to making investment decisions that can definitely damage your long-term results because when you're anxious, you're more likely to allocate your attention to negative information. Now, given the choice between information that may offer you a positive perspective or data that says the world is ending, most anxiety-influenced uh, folks tend to focus on the threatening information, shall we say. You know, stocks move the most up or down on the gap between expectations and reality. And so right now, as survey shows, expectations are pretty dang low right now. That suggests to me that markets already reflect the effects of the war to a great extent and implying the bar for reality to deliver positive surprises on the economic front is pretty low. And that's common during corrections. While no one can time corrections, this sort of deteriorating sentiment is common around lows. See, stocks move the most up or down on the gap between expectations and reality. So you see these reports come out that say earnings were better than expected. Stock will usually go up. Outlook better than expected, stock goes up. Now, when they flip the headline and say worse than expected, whoop, down they go. And so that's pretty much how it goes. It, it, very simplistic, but as I say, expectations are low right now. So from these periods, typically we can get a nice bounce, historically speaking. Now, again, you know, deteriorating sentiment common around lows and let's take the Wayback Machine to uh, October of 1962, that was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And a headline from the Wall Street Journal at the time said, and I'm quoting, if it doesn't end in nuclear war, the Cuban crisis could give the U.S. economy an unexpected lift and maybe even postpone a recession, unquote. Well, from their high in mid-October of 1962, Stocks were down only 7%, even as the world was on the brink of a nuclear war. And I have here, who is this from? Hartford Funds. They did a study where they went back to uh, May of 1940, when Germany invaded France, all the way up to and including the Russians uh, invading Crimea, Crimea in uh, 2014. And they say, what... What did the market do three months later, a year later, three years later, and so on and so on? I won't read you each one, but it, within the next three months, uh, with one exception, that's wrong, four exceptions, they were down. However, a year later, all but three were up. Three years later, all but two were up. Five years later, they were all up. 
and 10 years later they were all up as well. So these are typically short lived situations. And there's another thing. Uh, going back, you look at the market in any one year, how is it done? Well, you know, you got highs and lows during the year. On average, on average, every year, the S&P is down 13.6% each year at some point. So in other words, even if the S&P ends the year plus 30, at some point during the year, it may have been down 13% or more just in the normal course of events. So markets being down intra-year, you know, that's <laughs> that's just how it goes. It's not anything to be uh, looking to uh, dive off cliffs about. It is the normal course of events. You know, I think the good news is, is that once you realize there are, well, let's try it another way, is no one perfect asset. You can begin to create a, a portfolio that takes into account that nothing works always and forever in the market. Nobody knows where stocks go from here, or the economy, or anything. You know, not Warren Buffett, anybody else. The good news is that seeing the future isn't necessary for success in the financial markets. What is necessary is a strategy and a plan. And nobody nobody who's selling their stocks today has a plan because nobody's plan is to panic sell. Now, if you're trying to grow your wealth, and I'm not exactly sure why else you'd be investing, then part of your plan has to include living through this um, gastric distress period, this discomfort. You know, any strategy that's based on all upside, no downside, well, that's not too realistic, is it? You know, our bull run could be pausing or it might be ending. My opinion is that it's it may be pausing, but it's definitely not ending. And if it's the latter and things do get more challenging going forward, there's something important you need to know. The one thing that all negative markets have in common, they end. That's right, they end. And then, as I alluded to earlier, they go back to where they were and higher. Now, you don't need to know when it's going to end. You just need to know that it will. And if you can tolerate the uh, discomfort in the interim, you will make nice money over time. But if you can't, well, you won't. You know, people and companies are constantly innovating and updating. I mention this because that's why the stock market is and, and has been such a great long-term investment. It is the only investment that allows you to directly benefit from their ability, the company's ability, the people within the company's ability to create and innovate. A winning strategy has always been to ignore the fear mongers and stick with the best companies of the U.S. and the world. It isn't about diminishing prevailing risks. It's about remembering that markets tend to right themselves once the risks go by. So, Everything's different, but nothing's really changed. Now, I want to hit two things that have been in the news lately just real quick. This stuff about uh, stagflation. That's uh, what that means is sustained inflation coupled with lower economic growth. Uh, they just they rolled that out from when the peanut farmer was, uh, uh, well, I guess in charge. And uh, that's what his administration was all about. But uh, I, I don't see that coming to pass. 
Now, a recession, that's also been bandied about lately. That means a significant decline in general economic activity in a designated region. Now, I, region. now, obviously, I didn't make that up, but that's the school solution. And it's been recognized. What that means is two consecutive quarters of a drop in GDP, uh, as well as a rise in unemployment. I don't see that happening. Now, I think it takes a few more things to happen before any recession becomes imminent. See, because recessions are almost always preceded by very high interest rates, uh, a flat or inverted treasury yield curve, meaning short-term rates are higher than long-term rates. You know, every recession except this last one was preceded by very high interest rates and a flat or inverted yield curve. They were not close to either one at this time. Real yields on the Fed funds rate, that's real yields means after inflation, and the Fed's fund rate is what the Fed uh, charges banks. Anyhow, the real, the real yields are record-setting lows, which means liquidity is everywhere. There's money all over. Like I said, civilians have $17 trillion sitting in the banks, so you know the banks got, <laughs> they got probably more than that, right? And the Fed and the banks are practically begging people to borrow money because they got it to give away. Well, lend. They don't give away anything. All three of the indicators that normally precede recessions are not at all in worrisome territory, at least certainly in our country. Now, we have none of those conditions. Real yields are very low. Yield curves still positively sloped. In other words, short-term yields are lower than long-term yields. Liquidity is, as I say, everywhere. And abundant liquidity is one of the best ways for an economy to avoid recession. Because with liquidity, markets can shift risk to those willing to bear it. And without liquidity, well, panic can ensue. Now, I remember the words of J.P. Morgan, too. He said this in 1908. Anyone who is a bearer on the future of this country will go broke. You can take that to the bank. Well, that's it for this week, folks. I hope you found it at least helpful and hope give you some comfort about what's going on out there. Don't abandon the markets. That's all I can tell you. Don't do it. And now that both the ladies and gentlemen of Gonzaga basketball are going to be going to the big dance, stay tuned tomorrow for who goes where and who will be playing. So congratulations to them uh, as players and, as, and to the university and the coaching staff. So thank you very much for listening, folks. We'll be back next Saturday, hopefully with some good economic and market news. I thank you for listening. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and you've been listening to Money Management. Join us again next Saturday morning at the same time for the financial insight, opinion, and perspective of Money Management with Mike Mayo. Have a question or comment? You can reach Mike at our website, opus111group.com.